All right, Trinity Church, good morning. I missed your lovely faces last Sunday. Uh, we, it was really, really cold out here in the morning, and so we went online, and welcome to you guys watching online today as well. On the grassy knoll, can you hear me? All right, good, I see your waving hands, good news. Okay, good to see you. We are so glad to be here today. Can we thank the worship team one more time? What a great job. Again, in helping us focus, being preoccupied with Jesus, I wanted to bring to your attention the youngest member of our worship team, Noah Hilkema, eighth grader, rocking on the drums for us today. Can we thank him? What a great job. Love getting to see him up there and just did a great job with the rest of our team today. So it was really fun. Well, we are in a series called Beckon, and we are looking at Jesus inviting people close to come and know him, to know the Father, and we're going to continue in that today. If you have a Bible, if you want to get that out, find your way to John chapter 2. If you have a phone and you have our app, or if you just want to go online, you can easily find our notes that are available digitally as well, and you can have those available to kind of fill in the blanks. If you're in a home group, then that'll also make a way for you to be able to track with us uh, today and then in your discussion as you meet later this week. So my name is Todd Arnett. I'm the lead pastor at Trinity. It is a privilege to get to be with you today. And I had a couple updates for you as you're finding your way there. One thing that was really great, my friend Scott Clayton is our business administrator, and he put some stuff together to have me share with you today. I just wanted you to know your generosity in the month of December, we kind of get everything kind of taken. It's taken, usually takes a couple weeks into the next month. But I just wanted to report back to you that your giving in the month of December was the highest ever since 2006. That is a yay God kind of thing, especially in the midst of the challenges that so many are facing financially. And again, your giving even to, in that same month culminated our Advent conspiracy, $50,000 we received that we immediately gave away. And that was not included in that same number. That was a whole different thing. And you are giving on top of that to our HELPS Fund. That is going to truly meet needs. If I remember right in the document Scott gave me, $70,000 has not only come in, but gone out from our HELPS Fund this last year to help people in real needs that we know they're experiencing. So I just want you to know, I'm just so grateful for your posture and your attitude of generosity and the way that God's using that. The other thing that I'm real excited about, we had told you months ago back in April, I believe it was when these PPP loans were available that we did uh, move forward in getting one of those. And this last, uh, I think this last week, Scott got confirmed that it is completely a grant, no loan at all. It's been 100% pay, we don't have to pay a dime back. So all of those things add up to just a great place. When you see this week in our e-news, you'll see our updated numbers and you'll see a lot of red because the way that our giving compared to our budget is behind, but the way that our spending is also behind, we're in a good place. So I just wanted you to know that and I wanted to thank you for the way that you have been so generous and the way that God is using. And I loved when Allison was sharing today about even our food box ministry. We're excited to pick that back up again. And we just wanna be a beacon. That's what we wanna be is a place where God is at work among us and through us into our community. Well, let me catch you up. So as we are walking through, we're in John chapter two. And what we're looking at today is in this series, we're talking about the word beckon just means to make a mute sign, to signal someone to come close. 
And that's what we see about this Jesus as he continues to welcome people to come close to him and to know who he is and to see the Father through him. Today we pick up where we left off. Last week, we saw an amazing expression of Jesus's generosity when he changed the water into wine at a wedding celebration he was at. This passage follows right behind it and it's, it's a little bit confusing. You're gonna see a side of Jesus today that some have read this passage before and been even offended by. It looks like he's lost his mind and is going through the temple courts and just doing all kinds of things a madman would do. But instead today, we're gonna look at Jesus cleansing the temple, what was going on with that and what we can walk away with as truth about the Son of God and his desire, his passion to see people worship the Father as we'll see later in John chapter four in spirit and in truth. So we have a now what statement. It's on the screen and it's in your notes today. This is what our hope is that we would walk away and carry with us this week. Value both Jesus's expressions of grace and truth in your life because he came full of both. My grammar might not be good at the end there, but that's, you get the point, okay? Number one in our notes, Jesus was passionate about the purity of people's worship of his father. Jesus was passionate about the purity of people's worship of his father. We're in John chapter two, picking it up at verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all, of the temp drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Like we were saying, this passage can be troublesome to people for a host of reasons. We'll look at it together today. But what I want to say from the beginning, I don't read, when I read this, I don't read of a crazed man out of his mind just flipping out. What I see, though, is someone who had seen temple worship be so desecrated, so much off of what God intended, that there was a time to bring rightness to the situation. Let me walk it out with you. We pick it up and we see this follows right like we said on the sign. Remember we said that John is gonna use these words, we'll see it again today. The word sign relates to this thing that points people to a greater sense of confidence and a greater sense of trust in who Jesus said he was. So that sign, the first one that he performed that's recorded in the Gospel of John was turning the water into wine. And we noted last time, John's attention to detail. He doesn't say, and the next day was the Passover, but he does give us a context. This narrative that we're looking at today happened near the Passover festival. So let's take a minute to remind ourselves the Passover is something that is so significant. We don't just want to read over it and expect that we all remember what even the Passover was for and what it was intended. So I want you to see um, in, on the screen or in your notes, Moses gave uh, directives to the new generation in the book of Deuteronomy that was going to go into the land. And this is a generation, by the way, all their parents have died. That generation were adults when they left Egypt. Now it's their children that are hearing for, in a sense, a new 
This is something this Passover celebration is not to be forgotten. Just even if you were either born in the wilderness or you were just a child when it happened, we're going to keep celebrating. Deuteronomy 16, 1, observe the month of Aviv and celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, he brought you out of Egypt by night. Sacrifice as the Passover uh, to the Lord your God, an animal from your flock or herd at the place the Lord will choose as a dwelling for his name. In Deuteronomy, they hadn't even established Jerusalem as the religious center of the country yet. So Moses just knew it's going to happen. There's going to be a place that you assemble. So he's speaking that far out. Um, verse three, do not eat it, this animal, with uh, bread made with yeast, but for seven days eat unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because you left Egypt in haste, so that all the days of your life you may remember the time of your departure from Egypt. So that's the context. That's what people were coming to Jerusalem to celebrate. And we'll see in a minute, they were coming from everywhere. Every adult male was supposed to come back to Jerusalem. And so Jesus, in that category, was going to make his way to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast as well. And when he arrived, he sees these merchants that are selling things and exchanging money in one of the temple courts. So let's take a look and so we can see what's happening. It's going to be hard for you to see this graphic. It may be in your notes on the app as well. But I want you to see where this temple court thing was going on. The word that is used in the temple courts, as you try to understand what it was, most likely was what was called the court of the Gentiles. The court of the Gentiles. And this is something that's really kind of unique to us. We talk about in Christianity that everyone is welcome. Everyone has opportunity to be in entrance or to be available to God because he's made that happen through Jesus. In Judaism, that was absolutely not the case. There were literal walls of separation. So the outer courts was called the court of the Gentiles. And if you were a Gentile who had come to worship at this festival, at Passover, that's as far as you got. You couldn't go beyond that. That was a limiter for you. The next court with literally a wall of separation was the court of the women. Jewish women could only go that far. The next court beyond that, another wall, was the court of the Israelites. In other words, a court for men, non-Levitical, non-priest men. Men could go that far. The court beyond them, separated by another wall, the court of the Levites or the priests. And then beyond that, one final place, the most inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where the high priest would only go one day a year, the Day of Atonement, where God himself uniquely dwelt. So I want you to catch that. That is significantly different from anything that we're used to because we talk about having this availability to come before God, no matter what your ethnic creed, no matter what your gender is, male or female, none of those things keep us from drawing near. But in the Jewish faith, there were literal walls of separation that kept people from getting closer. So I want you to catch something. If this marketplace was happening in the court of the Gentiles, and by the way, let's just do the math. Could people have not sold animals and exchanged money outside of the temple, available for everyone on their way in? They chose to use the space where only Gentiles could only go that far. 
I don't know if you've ever connected that dot. I hadn't until this week. If I was a Gentile worshiper of Yahweh, where I came to worship at Passover was filled with marketplace. That's a problem. And I want you to see that Jesus sees that's a problem. If only for the fact that Gentile worshipers could not have a worship experience coming before Yahweh because their space was filled with cattle and sheep and money changers and doves. I want you to see that. I think that is what grieved Jesus' heart the most. I want you to think of the practicality, though, of why these people were there. Often this is what happens. People would have come. Jesus probably came from Nazareth to Jerusalem, and he could have taken a goat or a sheep with him the whole way. But what would be more available or more comfortable would just simply be to come and buy one when you get in Jerusalem. Or what if you'd come even internationally? Jews had spread out all over the modern world. And what if you'd come from a long ways away? Do you have to really bring your lamb all the way with you or just wait till you get to Jerusalem and buy one? There was a practicality to that. When people would come and they would give financially to the temple, they would have had coins and, and currency from all different parts of the world. It was convenient that there were money changers who would make that available. So what's happened is in the name of convenience, people have taken over this space reserved for where Gentiles could come and worship God. So I want you to see it. It would have been very easy to just think, well, this is just a convenient thing. And what's really the harm in it? A commentator that I'm reading all throughout this series named Tenny, this is what he said about this. The sale of cattle and doves and the privilege of exchanging money were permitted in the temple courts as a convenience for pilgrims who would need animals for sacrifice and temple shekels for their dues. Under the chief priests, however, the concessions had become merely a means of making money and had debased the temple into a commercial venture. That's the problem. That's the problem. It was not as though those same things of convenience couldn't have happened literally just outside the temple, right out on the street in front. No, they chose instead to be inside in this space reserved for Gentiles to come and worship. Now, one thing I want you to see, we've talked about how John is a unique account of Jesus's life compared to Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three gospels are called the synoptic. They're from the same perspective. They have so much overlap, but John has all this unique material. And what's interesting is the three synoptic gospels also record Jesus cleansing the temple, but doing so in the last week of his life before he'd go to the cross. This account in John 2, and we'll say this from the beginning, John, even though he has attention to detail, he's not necessarily writing a complete linear, uh, everything is happening at this, you know, in a historical timeline. He might move around, but this account seems to happen at the beginning of Jesus's ministry and the other three record it at the end. Some people struggle with this, but I think when you read all the accounts, which I spent time reading this week, the other three all line up and they actually all talk about this similar thing that happened. Jesus, when he's quoted, why does he say this is a problem? This is what he says in all three other accounts. My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So Jesus' concern 
in, in what we just read in John 2, he's making it a marketplace and he doesn't say those other things. There's no account of him making a whip in the other accounts either. My simple understanding is I think Jesus cleared the temple twice. He did here in John 2 at the beginning of his ministry and he did the week of his passion when he would go to the cross. So if that's a, a challenge for you to try to figure out how do these things all happen, that's my best understanding of it in the reading I did this week, that this is the first time that Jesus would do this and he would do it again the week of his death. I want you to see what the disciples understood his motivation was. It says, and the disciples picked up on something from Psalm 69, for I endure scorn for your sake and, the sh and shame covers my face. I am a foreigner to my own family, a stranger to my own mother's children. By the way, that couldn't be more true. We're gonna see again and again, Jesus' siblings don't get it. Don't believe that he is who he says he is. But then verse nine, for zeal for your house consumes me and the insults of those who insult you fall on me. Look in your notes, zeal, this Greek word literally means hot enough to boil, hot enough to boil. So zeal would talk about this sense of being boiling over with anger. It could also be boiling over with love. It's just a sense, it's high emotion, it's passion. And it could be something towards anger, it could be something towards love, but either way, it's that kind of thing. So you could say that Jesus had a heated passion for seeing the prescribed worship of Yahweh be facilitated by people who were in charge of doing it. The local priests, the Levitical group were responsible for maintaining a, an opportunity for people to come and worship Yahweh, especially at Passover. You could say that Jesus had a heated passion for the fact that wasn't happening. Now, I told you earlier, some people will read this account and they'll walk away thinking Jesus just lost his mind. I wanna tell you two reasons why I don't think that happened. None of us were there and we can only read the account of what we read, but one of the things that really stands out to me, especially when you think that Jesus just flipped out in a fit of rage, remember the words we just read. So he made a whip of cords. Someone who goes in a blind rage doesn't take the time to stand off to the side, find the kind of rope he would need, and to be able to weave it together into a whip. I want you to catch that. If he would have just literally walked into the court of the Gentiles, seen it, and he starts throwing everything over, I think he could make a case he lost it. But I think when he pulls away and he starts making this whip, I think he knows very clearly what is happening. He knows emotionally where he's at. We don't read anywhere in the text he actually struck anyone. What we read is that he used it to get people's attention that they needed to clear out. You'll even note he, he um, uses this to get the attention and the sheep and the cattle leave. He turns over the tables of the money changers, but did you note he tells the people who have doves, get them out of here. He doesn't flip out and start throwing birds all over the place. He says, pick these up and get them out of here now. So I want you to see, I don't want to try to dumb this down and go, well, Jesus was really, you know, he was emotionally fine and he was calm, cool and collected. No, there was passion. It's clear this word zeal means that, but it was definitely out of a righteousness and a righteousness of what people were actually being forfeited from being able to be involved in because people were making money. 
At the end of the day, that was the, the, what was happening. It's also crucial, I want you to catch this. It's crucial to note, Jesus' disciples did not join in. I really want you to catch that. I actually had that in an email this week. Someone telling me that we need to be more on the offensive as a church to uphold the righteousness of God because Jesus flipped the, the, the tables over in the temple. And I was thinking about that and I thought, Jesus did, but none of his disciples did. Not in John 2 and not in the past Passion Week at the end of his life. They stood back and watched. And I simply want to bring that point to you because I want to talk about, we're going to see in the next part of the passage, who has the authority to do such things? Jesus did. Jesus did, but in this case, none of his disciples believed that was their call, their um, calling to join him in that. They stood back. They watched and they realized zeal for his father's house consumes him. But they didn't join in as well thinking this is ours to do. We had noted in December when we kicked off, we kind of did a Christmas series in the first 18 verses of John, and then we just have continued forward. We noted that in that time, in the first 18 verses, 10 really big themes come out through uh, for the rest of the book of John. It's almost as though John's laying this uh, foundation and saying, you're going to pick up on these later on. One of the big ones was in chapter 1, verse 14, he came full of both grace and truth. I would put to you today that the sum of chapter two of John is a beautiful example of Jesus coming full of grace and full of truth. The first part of chapter two, he turns the water into wine, a beautiful example of God's graciousness. And Jesus cleansing the temple is a beautiful example of his commitment to truth. And like we said in our now what statement, those are two realities of the person of Jesus that we have to hold in tension. We have to appreciate that he is all of both, not some of one and lesser of another, 100% grace, 100% truth. And in the same way, a wonderful thing for us to say, if that's how Jesus rolled, I wanna live my life in a similar way, full of grace and full of truth. Number two in your notes today, Jesus's authority was derived from both who he was and what he would do. Jesus's authority was derived from who he was and what he would do. We're continuing in verse 18. The Jews then responded to him, what sign, keyword, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're gonna raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed, another key word, then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So here's what we see. This whole thing has happened. I mean, if you try to get in that moment, it must have been chaos. It would have been chaos because animals that were in pens now were running rampant. Tables that had some symmetry to them were flipped over and people trying to pick up stuff. People are running out with doves. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a mess. Once things have come to some degree of calm, the people who did have authority 
to run the temple, the, the Jews, this, these religious leaders, they come to Jesus and they, I think, ask a pretty appropriate question. By what authority are you doing this? You've just made a mess and you've upended something that was causing profit for us. This is a problem. And they ask, by what authority, what gives you the right to do this? But I think what's really interesting is they didn't actually ask it that way. Go back and read. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do this? They're the ones, religious leaders are asking Jesus, what sign can you do to prove that you have the authority to be in charge of our temple? Now, this is a very curious question. Because if they're using the word sign, like John is using the word sign, they're talking about some miraculous act. They're talking about something Jesus would do supernaturally to prove that he really is God and has the authority to do such things. Now, this is fascinating. Had word gotten out from the wedding at Cana and people knew that this Jesus is able to do stuff, no one knows what, how he does it? Maybe. Had word gotten out because Jesus, when he came up to Jerusalem to the Passover, had started doing signs even before this event of going into the temple. Possible, we're going to read in our passage today, he surely does them afterwards. But for whatever reason, the religious leaders of the temple, they don't want to know, like tell us by what authority, they want a sign. They want, let's, let's read between the lines, they want a magic trick. I've heard you do stuff nobody can explain. We want to see it. Let's see it right now. And in that, as they asked for that, I love the way I've also been using a commentary from D.A. Carson. This is how he says it. A sign that would satisfy them, presumably some sort of miraculous display performed on demand, would have signaled, watch this, the domestication of God. I love that. That sort of, quote, God does powerful stunts to maintain allegiance, and that kind of allegiance is not worth having. Indeed, if the authorities had eyes to see the cleansing of the temple was already a sign, they should have thought through and deciphered in terms of the Old Testament scripture. I love that. Carson's point is, we want you to do a magic trick. Jesus, understandably, knowing what they're asking, refuses to do so. Now, I want you to see, he doesn't do a sign, but he tells them an interesting thing. Destroy this temple. I'll raise it again in three days. I want you to catch this. We won't read this in our English translations, but first century readers of the Gospel of John reading Greek, they would understand something. Back in verse 14, when it said that they were selling things in the temple courts, that word for temple would have referred to the entire temple area. The entire, everything included, the outer courts, the inner courts, the Holy of Holies, the different courts of Gentiles, women, men, etc., that's the word that's used in verse 14. In verse 19, when Jesus says, destroy this temple, that word specifically means where deity dwells. In essence, what he's saying, destroy the holy of holies. And I'll raise it again in three days. We don't have a like-like 
We don't believe that somewhere uniquely on this campus, God uniquely dwells. But maybe a way to at least understand it in part is to say that the people were selling things on the church campus. They were somewhere outside, maybe in a space like here on the lawn. But Jesus says, destroy the sanctuary, destroy the worship center. He's talking about a specific place on the campus and I'll raise it again in three days. And I want you to catch that because what Jesus is saying, he's not referring to a campus. He's referring to the unique place where God alone dwells. And that really connects a lot of dots for us. It should have connected dots for them because it leads us to a wildly important point, a point that Jesus is making because God has become Emmanuel because he is with us in the person of Christ. The temple was no longer important. Watch this. Why? Because it wouldn't be important for sacrifices after Jesus makes the ultimate once for all sacrifice. But it also wouldn't be important related for a unique place for God to dwell because he's dwelling with them right now in their face. John chapter one, verse 14, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. There's no need for a holy of holies when God is in the flesh face to face with you. That to me is such a powerful thing. And so what's significant about this statement is not only that Jesus from the very beginning, the second chapter of the gospel of John, he's predicting his death and predicting his resurrection, but it's also important that he's identifying the true temple the true temple, not one made by human hands, but the temple of his body that allows us to enter in and to be made right and acceptable to God. Look at these words from Hebrews chapter nine. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with the blood that is not his own. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. I just think that is so profound. Jesus is saying more than I'm gonna die and be risen from the dead. He's saying the temple is among you. I'm standing right here in front of you. You no longer need this unique curtain and this unique space that only the, holy, the high priest can go to. I've come to dwell with you. This to me is such great news and such a great way of Jesus making this point. And it comes back to the ultimate purpose of why John writes the gospel is that people like the disciples, like us, that we would believe because of the signs that Jesus gave and that John recorded. And we see that Jesus's disciples, after he was raised from the dead, they would remember these words said to the temple uh, leaders and would realize that's what he was talking about. Finally today, number three in your notes, Jesus's esteem was not based on others' opinions, but in his own identity. Jesus's esteem was not based on others' opinions, but in his own identity. Verse 23, now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs, there's the word again, saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. 
but Jesus did not entrust himself to them for he knew all people. He did not need any testimony about mankind for he knew what was in each person. So here's something that we know. Even if Jesus wasn't performing miraculous signs before this cleansing of the temple, we know for sure he did afterwards. He stayed around in Jerusalem and people were healed in various ways or different signs were done that no one had an explanation for based on the laws of science. But I want you to catch this. This is now the third time that Jesus is demonstrating his deity with the goal that people would put their confidence in him. It began with Nathaniel. Nathaniel was blown away that Jesus saw him reading under a fig tree. And Jesus is like, you gotta be kidding me. You haven't seen anything yet. Then they're at a, a wedding together and he changes water into wine, completely miraculous deed. And now he performs these signs after cleansing the temple and people are putting their faith. They are believing. Remember that word that we've said is that believing is really that word for faith turned into a verb. They're faithing in him. We wanna be careful in our English language, we'll use the word belief often as mental assent, but doesn't have to have any reality in the reality of our daily lives. That is not a biblical belief. It is putting my faith, my confidence in someone else. And, and they're putting their belief in his name, that phrase, meaning that they don't believe him to be Jesus from Nazareth. They believe him to be Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. They're putting their faith that he is this unique one of God. I want you to see something that's really important. This word believe that the crowds were doing, they were faithing in him, is the same word just earlier when it said, and the disciples believed in him when they realized what he was saying about his body being destroyed and being raised in three days. So the disciples' belief and the crowd's belief is the same Greek word. Now what's interesting is we read on in the book of John, we're gonna see that the crowds are incredibly fickle. There will be a time they seem really drawn to Jesus and want to follow and all of a sudden he'll say or do something and they're like, we're out. This guy's nuts. So, so how can that be? How can these two words be the same word that's used? One thing I put out to you, not in the book of John, but in, I believe it's Mark and Luke, Jesus tells a powerful parable about the sower and the seed. And it says that all four types of soil, quote, receive believe, we would say, in the, the gospel that is sown into it. But of two, the two in the middle, those that had thorns grow up and those that was sown among rocky soil, that though there was a response, though there was a green plant, they never developed into the type of plant that actually bore a crop. And we've said it before, sowers don't sow seed to just see a green thing pop up, they sow seed because they wanna see a plant that produces more. So could it be that the crowds had that kind of middle faith that the worries of this life choke them out or when trials become too difficult, they don't have any roots and they can't stand? That to me seems like a reasonable explanation for why the crowds don't ultimately keep faithing, why they ultimately don't keep believing that Jesus is who he said he was. But I think one thing that's most important 
We just read that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. It's the same word. The crowds were believing in Jesus, faithing in him when they saw the signs. But when Jesus saw their belief, he did not faith in them. And I want you to see why that's so important. We as human beings, we love getting good news. We love when things come back as though people are responding favorably to what we're doing. What we just read in John 2, Jesus didn't need anyone's press. Jesus didn't need anyone's affirmation of what he was doing. Why? Because he knew what was in people. He knew the crowds were fickle. He knew the disciples, every one of them would walk away in the moment he needed them the most. So Jesus never entrusted himself to them, even though rightly they entrusted themselves to him. And it all is based on the simple reality. It is right in your notes, check this out, because Jesus is altogether righteous. It is right that we entrust ourselves to him and absolutely right that he does not entrust himself to us. Why? Because we are just as fickle. We are just as short-sighted to not see the bigger picture. We are not the God who is working all things out for the ultimate good for those who believe and are called according to his purpose because we can't see the big picture. You have many examples of times you have prayed, God, please do this on my behalf. God, please do this on our behalf. God, please do this on someone else's behalf. Only for God to say no, and later on for you to say, thank you, God, you said no. I really wouldn't have wanted that now that I see the outcome. We are not people who are trustworthy Praise God that he is. He is not like us in the fact that he is fickle. He is not like us in the fact that he is short-sighted. He is not like us in the fact that we can be capricious and he never is. That is a praiseworthy thing about the quality of who Jesus is. It'd be like this, it'd be like saying, you have a three-year-old and you're taking care of your three-year-old and you're providing a great meal for them on Monday. And your three-year-old trusts you that even though it's not all cake and ice cream for all three meals on Monday, it's actually good food for them and good for their nourishment. That's a good thing that your three-year-old entrusts himself or herself to you. But it wouldn't be good if on Tuesday you said, what are we eating today? And let your three-year-old pick it out. Your three-year-old doesn't have wisdom your three-year-old doesn't have perspective and your three-year-old will make a bunch of bad choices. It is right that we entrust ourselves to God. It is right that he does not entrust himself to us. Finally today, what I love about these last words, sorry, my iPad's being a little fickle, is that Jesus didn't need any praise or validation from people because he not only knew how fickle they were, he knew who he was. His identity was rooted squarely in who he was and he didn't need other people to affirm it. That's why we sing with joy 
and we sing as a reminder, I am who you say I am. Even in the times when we feel lesser, even in the times we feel defeated, even in the times that we feel, God, how could you even love me? It's such a failure. I am who you say I am. And a verse that I often quote, but fits so well today, related to Jesus offering the temple of his body for you to make you right. Listen in a fresh way, these words from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Man, thank you, God, that our identity is now new and fresh and real because it's rooted in whose we are, not what we do. Our now what statement value both Jesus' expressions of grace and truth in your life because he came full of both. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you today as a people who are so grateful that you do hold the hand. You do fully embody grace and truth. You are not one or the other. You're not some of one and less of another. You're 100% of both. And chapter two of John just demonstrates that so powerfully. You are no less truth when you were changing water into wine and you are no less grace when you were clearing the temple. That is the Jesus. That is the God who invites us to come close. And Father, in this study of the book of John, would you keep drawing us close? Would you keep helping us know who you are, not only for our good, but God, for the good of those around us that we might reflect Jesus well to our worlds. You might be here today and even these last words about how we find our identity and whose we are. If you're honest with yourself today, you'd have to say, I, I don't know what that means or I don't know that my identity is found in anything other than what I do because I've never been in Christ. I've never put my faith, I've never believed in him. And I am simply the sum of who I, what I've done at this point. And I have good news for you today is that you can change that right now. Whether you're here on the lawn, whether you're watching online, when you A, admit, admit that you're a sinner who needs a savior. When you B, believe, when you believe that Jesus is the only savior available, when you believe that he lived a sinless life, he died a sacrificial death, he was raised supernaturally on the third day like we've talked about today, all for you. See is choose. Choose to say, Jesus, I believe, I put my faith, my confidence in what you've accomplished for me, not what I can do somehow to earn it from you. And in that, Father, I recognize that I want to live my life out of that reality, out of that identity, and I want to live my life following Jesus. If you've never made that decision, I pray you wouldn't leave here today till you do. There's no better time than now. And Father, for those of us who have made that decision this week, would we emulate your son, living lives filled with grace and truth. Thank you so much for this expression 
that we can be so drawn to and so encouraged by. We love you and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.